Let's read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 together. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Here's what God's word says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone." Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, this is in verse 8, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together uh, before we look at this passage of Scripture. God, as we come together to sing these psalms, to study Scripture, to pray together, God, we pray, just as Kenny prayed earlier, Father, that we would not take this lightly. God, there is an appropriate weight to your word. There is an appropriate weight to gathered worship. God, let us be reminded this morning of how good you are, how you have designed us for life and life abundantly. But God, we know that that does not come easily. In fact, that is a supernatural gift that you provide. And so God, show us more of that this morning as we look at your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this will not come as any sort of surprise to you, um, but I am not a great dancer. Uh, in fact, I pretty much despise, uh, despise dancing. There was a little video going around on social media this week of these three young girls, probably like elementary age. One of them was kind of just dancing off to the side like this, and the one in the middle, like hair flying, she was going crazy. And then the third little girl on the side, she was living in the middle. Wasn't sure, like, if she wanted to go for the dance or she wasn't sure and you were supposed to pick which one you were. That's me right there, just off to the side. Like, super awkward junior high, high school dance experiences. Um, in New Orleans, when I was going to seminary at New Orleans Seminary and doing Ph.D. work, we would teach for other seminaries as part of our, our going to school. There was another seminary in New Orleans that in some just, what's the word, sinful days uh, of, of the history of our convention that black students and white students didn't go to seminary together. Um, just repulsive, but those, those uh, seminaries have been brought back together in partnership and good things are happening, but there's still a predominantly African-American seminary there in New Orleans, and we would go and teach, and so we would participate in their graduation ceremony. And I was walking down the aisle, and they stopped the graduation and said, uh, sir, when we go down the aisle, we like to provide a little bit of rhythm as we're going down the aisle. 
<laughs> and if I just make it down the aisle, like just be be happy at that. I do. I'm doing my best here. Like I I do not dance. I have no rhythm a, at all. Here's one dance move I do mo- know, and, and you know know it well. One step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two step. You, you know anything about that dance move in your life? Like, Lord. Man, I'm moving forward now. Like, I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to share my faith with others. Like, I am moving ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm attending church in 2019. Like, I'm taking a step forward. And what happens as soon as you take a step forward? It feels like just as quickly you take two steps back. Step forward, two steps back. Step forward, faith in God. And then that website you said that you would never go back to, that trip back to the fridge, I'm never using this credit card again, I use the credit card again, the lie I tell today to cover the lie I told yesterday, the terrible things I say about myself late at night when nobody is around, step forward, two steps back. Why does that happen? What does that look like? John chapter 3, big step forward, baptism, baptism, this is happening. Why in 4 does that spiritual opposition come? We're going to look at that this morning. What does that look like? We're going to spend several weeks, actually, in Matthew chapter 4, looking at this temptation account. This morning, we're just going to look at verse 1. But here's what we're going to do before we look at Matthew 4, 1. I want to show a verse to you on the screen. We are going, I know this is... A big ask. In the next two minutes, we're going to memorize this verse together as a church, okay? I want you to take this verse home, which means it would probably be good if you wrote it down somewhere. Um, Kids, this week, when you do your Route 66 read at home around the kitchen table or the living room, you guys are going to read a chapter from the book of Leviticus, and it's going to sound like a little bit of a confusing chapter in Leviticus 16, but it's going to be about how Jesus defeated sin and death, and, and this Bible verse will be really helpful to hold on to. So I'll just remind you of John 10.10. 10. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Most of us, because of our Oklahoma accents, can make steal and kill rhyme by the time we, we say them with our Oklahoma draw. But Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I, speaking of Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. There's an enemy, a thief, that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So here we go, church. We're going to say this a couple of times together. The way we're going to do it is we're just going to say the first two lines together. I know this feels awkward. You probably didn't come here this morning wanting to speak out loud, especially with somebody sitting next to you, but we're going to do this because there's something about participating and speaking out loud that begins to put it in our minds and our hearts. So count of three, we're going to say those first two lines together. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. All right, let's do it again. One, two, three. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Are you guys able to black out the screen? Or, yeah, here we go. All right. Three, two, one. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You say, well, Owen, watch me when I get home at lunch. Try to remember that. Okay, bring the, bring the slide back up if you can. 
Second half, let's start at the beginning and read all the way to the end, okay? Here we go, one, two, three. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Let's do the whole thing one more time. One, two, three. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I hope you'll put that somewhere this week where you can see it because I think it's going to reinforce a lot of the things we're going to see in Matthew chapter 4. Hey, pick up your Bible if you have it or your, or your phone if you've got access to the Bible. We want to pick apart, take apart Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. Let's just kind of take that verse piece by piece. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's start with the first phrase. The first phrase, then Jesus. The word then obviously connects back to Matthew chapter 3 and, and what came before. But, but a very key point here when it says then Jesus is how Jesus was described at the end of chapter 3. If you scroll up in your phone or you look in your Bible in, in, in front of you, chapter 3 verse 17 says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When it says, then Jesus is talking about the beloved, pleasing son of God. Which is why the temptations that Jesus faces are about his identity. Chapter 4, verse 3, if you are the son of God. Wait, chapter 3 ended with... This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Chapter 4, how did the temptations work? If you are the son of God. What's happening? The temptations in Matthew 4 are against the identity of Jesus. Do you know how temptation often comes into your life? It's a shot at your identity. You aren't really loved by God. You aren't really forgiven. You aren't really worth anything. That's the way temptation works, if you are the Son of God, when God just said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This chapter, just like chapter 3 was not primarily about our baptism, it's about the baptism of Jesus, chapter 4 is not primarily about our temptation, it's about the temptation that Jesus faces and how he overcomes that. Those two fit together, but I want you to remember that when you see Jesus at the very beginning of Matthew 4, 1, it's the question, is he really the beloved son of God? What's the second phrase there? So then Jesus, what? Was led up by the Spirit. Again, you have an immediate connection with chapter 3. Chapter 3 ended with the baptism of Jesus, and what happened? The Spirit of God came on him. Here's the Spirit of God, but now chapter 4, he's going to face temptation and testing. The question is, if I have the Spirit of God at work in my life, surely nothing's going to dip, difficult is going to come, right? <laughs> yeah, the Spirit of God. I just, he came on me. He said that I'm his beloved son. Nothing hard's going to happen. Nothing, well, we know that's ridiculous. Like, just because, here's what is happening at the beginning of chapter 4. Just because the Spirit of God is powerfully at work in your life does not mean you won't face difficulty and temptation. And in that difficulty and temptation, the Spirit of God does not abandon you. 
He continues to guide and empower and be in control of that situation. If you want a neat Old Testament connection with this, look at Psalm chapter 51 as David is trying to untangle his own battles with temptation and sin. And part of his prayer in Psalm 51 is he prays that the Spirit would not be taken from him, that he would not be cast from the presence of God. Jesus is showing here in Matthew 4 that when he goes into this time of trial and temptation, the Spirit continues to be at work. Next phrase. So then Jesus, Son of God, was led by the Spirit who remains in control into the wilderness. Now at this point, the Old Testament sirens start to go off in our minds. First off, chapter 3, where was John the Baptist preaching? In the wilderness. <laughs> now, Jesus is going to go further into the wilderness. When he goes into the wilderness at this point, he goes as who? The Son of God. Is he truly the Son of God? At this point, hold on to this idea. In the Old Testament, who is called God's Son? It's the nation of Israel. Look at this slide. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son. You say, well, that sounds a lot like how Jesus is identified in the New Testament. Yeah, absolutely. Those are meant to go together. Hosea 11.1. 1. We saw this a few weeks ago uh, going through Christmas. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God brings his people out of Egypt, and they go into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? Oh, man, you know, they worship God and trust God. No. What happens? They grumble, they complain, they have no faith. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse, 20, or verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you. Why did God bring the people out of Egypt into the wilderness? To test them for 40 years. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and you look at verse 2. How long is Jesus in the wilderness being tested? After fasting, 40 days and 40 nights. Now if you've been around the Bible very long, you know the number 40 gets a lot of, a lot of play in the Bible. There is absolutely no doubt that the 40 years of the testing of Israel in the wilderness is meant to mirror the 40 days of Jesus being in the wilderness following his baptism. Who else hung out for a period of 40 days? Moses and Elijah. Who has been smeared across the first three chapters of Matthew up to this point? Moses and Elijah. All of these stories from the Old Testament are just getting sucked into the life of Jesus, and now he's bringing all of that to perfect fulfillment. It's all coming together at this point. Out of Egypt, I called my son in the Old Testament. I brought Israel out of Egypt. Where did Jesus come from? Well, his family had gone down to Egypt, and he was brought out of Egypt. How did the people get out of Egypt in the Old Testament? They passed through the water. What happens to Jesus when he comes out of Egypt? He goes through the water of baptism. Old Testament, what happened to the people after they went through the water? They were tested in the wilderness. What happens to Jesus after he goes through the water of baptism? He's tested in the wilderness. The story of Israel 
is brought to perfect fulfillment here in the story of Jesus, how all this fits together. Back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not a throwaway phrase like this is just bringing all the pieces of the Bible together, into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted. Now this is where it gets a little bit tricky. We try... I tell myself, hey, don't talk about Greek very much, and then it happens every week. So forgive me, but that's, that's kind of where we are. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. In the Greek language, the word for tempted and the word for tested is the same Greek word. You have to figure out what's going on in the situation to know is this a temptation or is this a testing. So it says here that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, and my tab didn't work well for me on the slide there, sorry about that, but the word tempted is the same word for tested and tried. Now here's what's interesting, in the book of James, you get a little bit more explanation of this in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Think of that as the same root word, the same word tied to temptation. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, I mean, does that ring bells from Deuteronomy 8 that we saw a second ago, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, in James, let me jump ahead a couple of verses. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Does God lead his people at times into a testing? Yes, there is testing, absolutely. You see that across the pages of Scripture. Does God tempt his people to sin? No, he does not. Testing produces endurance and strength and steadfastness. Temptation is meant to lead to sin and to death. In fact, you get that in the next couple of verses in James. James 1, 14 and 15 each person is actually tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, which is not sin itself, but when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Let me say it this way. Testing is meant to make us stronger for life. Temptation is meant to steal, kill, and destroy life meant for entirely different purposes, sometimes tied up, though, in the same circumstances in, in our lives. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10 says about God and temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When temptation comes, God promises escape, and endurance are possible through his work in our life. All right, let's go back to Matthew 4, 1 at this point. Then Jesus, when I see that, I think he's the son of God, and that's going to be tested. He was led by the Spirit. God's Spirit has not disappeared from this situation. He continues to be at work. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why is he going to the wilderness? He's reenacting the story of Israel. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted which we already know is tied to this idea of testing. But how's that going to happen? It's going to happen by the work of the devil. That word, which admittedly feels a little strange in 2019, like how do we make, make sense of that? 
Remember that the term devil or even Satan, coming from a different language, have to do with the idea of the accuser or the slanderer. That the work of the enemy is to make us believe things that aren't true. To feed us lies. What type of lies? Primarily about our identity, right? Because this whole issue is, is Jesus really the Son of God? Are you really a child of God? And that is tempt, uh, tested over and over and over again by the one who accuses you. Do you remember what you did? You're not good enough. You'll never live up to that standard, these accusations that come, which I know that depression is so multifaceted, and so I say this so carefully. But in those times when you accuse yourself, when you say things about yourself that aren't true, you are doing the work of the enemy for him. You are saying those things about yourself that God never said about you. Equally, when we slander someone else, and especially another believer speaking about them in ways that aren't true, we are doing the work of the enemy for him. That it's always an attack on identity. It's always an attack on are we secure in Christ. Now what does this look like a little bit more? First Peter is really helpful for this. When you think about the work of the devil and even the use of that word in the New Testament, what does this look like? First Peter 5 is, is really helpful. First it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So one attack, one temptation that comes is the temptation to pride. I don't need God. I'm going to make my own way. I can figure this out. I will exalt myself. Genesis chapter 11, we, we talked about the Tower of Babel. This is that idea of pride. That's one temptation that comes is I can get along just fine without the work of God in my life. I, I've got this figured out. It's pride. But watch this. The very next verse says casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. One attack, one temptation is the temptation of pride. The other, and this sounds strange, but hear me out, is the temptation of despair and discouragement. Discouragement is one of the chief weapons of the enemy. Because if Satan can get you discouraged, you get down, you begin to doubt God's goodness, you begin to doubt your salvation, you begin to doubt the hope of anything around you, and that discouragement and despair, man, it can pile up fast. And before you know it, you just feel buried under it. This temptation that comes, it's not you being prideful, it's you just feeling overwhelmed by the despair and the discouragement around you, and that really begins to pile up fast. There's another temptation that's tied onto that that comes in the next verse. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I feel a little bit kind toward lions because Amanda and I watched that new Dynasty show on BBC America uh, with this tribe of lions, and man, or pride of lions. It really makes you feel good about lions, but lions are not good in, in this verse, okay? Verse 9, go to the next one. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, let's catch on to this because we're going to come back around to it. One thing that comes with temptation often is a feeling of isolation. And here's what I mean by this. 
One work of the enemy in your life to steal, kill, and destroy is a feeling of, I'm the only one going through this, or I'm the only one facing this. If you are facing temptation, if you are facing despair, the moment you say nobody else is going through this, or nobody else knows what this is like, you cut yourself off in many ways from the source of God's work in our life, where he brings people around us and say, you know what, you're not the only one going through that. And you're not the only one who has faced something like this. In fact, you're never meant to go through that alone because of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. These are just astounding verses about how God works in our lives. Hebrews chapter 2. Actually, let's, let's back up for a second. Let, let me, I think I need to review because I've, we've thrown out a lot of information at this point. Let me slow down and review this. Think of the progression like this. In the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the Bible, you get this beautiful picture of God's design for his people and for the world. But then you have temptation that comes in in the form of, did God really say? Is God really good? God is obviously holding out on you. He's keeping something from you. And so you have sin that works its way into the story. That's the garden story. Then you have the story of Israel, where God rescues his people and brings them back toward the promised land, and it takes about that long, and they start to think God's holding out on us. He brought us into the wilderness to kill us. He brought it, we, we'd be better off if we went back to Egypt, because at least we had steak there. And all we have in the wilderness is God and this little bit of food that he's provided. And you start to think about these things. Jesus comes, and he says, I'm going to take all all of what Adam should have done, and I'm going to take all of who Israel should have been, and I'm going to bring that to perfect fulfillment. And so he goes through this temptation so that he is able to know what it is to be tempted and yet to overcome that. And that leads me to the verse I was trying to get to. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect because he himself has suffered, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Had Jesus never faced that temptation, had he never faced that testing, he would never have been able to be the perfect representative and the perfect sacrifice for us. He would have never been able to take on our sin and our death, and he would never have been able to show us the way through. So was he tempted? Yes, he absolutely was. Was he victorious over temptation? He absolutely was. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now here's the question. When temptation comes in our life, so you've taken a step forward. God, I trust you. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to get involved in church. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to sing during worship. I'm going to pray with my kids or my spouse at home. Like I'm going to take, I, I really feel like I'm taking steps forward in my faith. And then that temptation comes. How do we respond to that? Do we just give in, say it doesn't matter, 
Why are you being so prudish? Let me just do what I want to do. Do, do we give in to that? Do we give up because it piles on, piles on, piles on? Or, or do we repent and, and trust in the Lord? Do we say, I, I believe you, I trust in you? Matt Chandler says it this way, and I think this is really helpful. Do we fight against sin? Do we justify sin? Or do we set up camp in sin? So there's this progression. It's a progression that feels very much like Psalm chapter 1 in the Old Testament. So are we fighting against sin, saying, I know that's going to take my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to believe and trust in the Lord. So we do fight against that, sometimes succeeding, sometimes not. Do we fight against it? Or the next step, if we stop fighting, is we start to justify it. It's not really sin, is it? Like it just kind of looks like it. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. It's not going to really matter. It's not going to affect anybody. We start to have these justifying thoughts about temptation and sin. And then finally, you just say, who cares? I'm going to do whatever I want because it really doesn't matter anyway. And you just set up camp and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to be. It doesn't matter what anybody says. From fighting to justifying to setting up camp, the question is, how do we continue to fight? And the way that we continue to fight is we continue to trust in the victory of Jesus. That we do not fight in our own power, we fight trusting in the hope of the gospel. On your note card, if you got one of those bluish colored note cards as you came in, I listed five things at the end that kind of take Matthew 4, 1, and all that we'll see in the next few weeks in Matthew 4, and, and lay them out. Because temptation tests five different things. Number one, temptation tests our belief in the Father's love. Is God really good and really wise, or is he actually holding out on me? <laughs> So temptation promises short-term pleasure, short-term rewards. It doesn't care about long-term consequences. Is God really good? Can I really trust him, or is he holding out on me? Do I really believe in the Father's love and the Father's goodness? You see an example of this in the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in the New Testament? where the son says, I want my inheritance. He goes off, he lives it up in another country, and then he comes back, and how does the father respond in that situation? Comes running back to him. In fact, runs after him, hugs him, throws a party with all this incredible, lavish love that the father is there to receive us back. Here's what happens sometimes. Because of shame, about what we've done, we end up cutting ourselves off from the Father's love. God couldn't really love me now because of what's happened. How could God truly love me? And so we cut ourselves off because of that shame. That even happens uh, within the church, like we're gonna talk about in a minute. So number one, we're tempted to doubt the Father's love. Number two, temptation tests our belief in the Son's victory. In other words, is it possible, is it absolutely true that through Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, including those sins from long ago that maybe not very many people 
know about. Here's one of the things I've found. I know I haven't been pastoring for, for very long, but here's one thing I've found to be true. So many people are held back from Christian growth, growth in their faith, because they still feel like there's something in their past that is held over their head by God. That God still remembers X from the past, and they're never able actually to grow in their faith or serve him because they're still held back by something in the past. Could it really be that Jesus died for all of our sins? Even those in the past that we or somebody around us still holds over our head. And the truth is, yes, he forgave those as well. And so let me say this next part extremely carefully, but, but it does matter. On a Sunday like this, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we absolutely stand up saying we protect life and we value life as a gift from God. But it very well may be that you're here and you've been on the other side of that story. That either as the mother or the father that you've been through a story of abortion or you've been in a dark place in regard to life. And the God of the universe says, I love you. And I gave my son so that all of that is forgiven, so that you will know that I am good and that I love you. And so, no matter what you've been through, God's grace is sufficient. That forgiveness is possible through Christ. That yes, his victory really is that good and that you can come to him and not be cut off in shame, you know when you're fighting sin and, and you're struggling through a temptation and you go to someone and they respond in shame and you feel cut off from that person, like how could I really go to them? When you go to God, that's not the case. He says, come to me, I love you, I care for you, and forgiveness is available. And so it tests our belief in the son's victory. Number three, temptation tests our belief in the spirit's power. That this is not just a human fight, that we need the work of God's Spirit when we face these situations. He doesn't abandon us in our time of greatest need. It is a work of the Spirit's power. Number four, temptation tests our belief in the Bible's truth. Is God, did God really say, that, that Genesis 3 question, did God really say, did he really say that this is how you should live? There's this little Bible verse that a lot of kids memorize, uh, coming up through kind of Sunday school and, and times like that, that I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him, that when God's word is at work in our life, when we're reading it, when we're taking it in, when we're meditating it, when you're memorizing John 10, 10, like we're doing this week, that as God's word is coming in, that we hold on to that truth. But when temptation comes, temptation immediately says, God's word is old, it's not relevant, it was for a time long ago and a place far away, and it doesn't really speak to our culture. And at that moment, that foundation is cut away. But if we do believe that God's word is true and powerful, we hold on to it. We, and, and you guys know as well as I do, when temptation comes, the first thing we do is run away from reading God's word because we don't want to be confronted with that truth and that light. And, and me at the front of the line, we cut ourselves off from that, which leads to number five we're going to wrap up with here. Temptation tests our belief in the church's hope. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Do we really believe 
that the gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. That victory is certain. Sometimes when we face temptation in, in our lives and in the world, we think, well, it's just hopeless. Just give up. It's not worth fighting. Is there really victory to come? Yes, there is. That the church will prevail, not because of our own strength, but because of Christ's victory. Which means as well, when we face temptation, so often we end up cutting ourselves off from the church. So I'm struggling with temptation. I'm struggling with this sin. Where's the last place I want to be? Oftentimes, with the church. Where's the first place I need to be when I'm fighting temptation and I'm fighting sin? With the church. Sometimes you hear this idea of spiritual warfare, and we're not going to talk about that a lot this morning just because we don't have time. One of the greatest avenues of spiritual warfare is corporate worship. If you are fighting temptation and sin and discouragement and despair and isolation in your life and you're feeling beat down by that, one of the greatest, most counterintuitive things you can do is gather with the church to worship and pray and read scripture. That corporate worship is this incredible gift. And you say, well, they'll know what's going on in my life. 99% of the time, when we think that, people don't have a clue what's going on, and the 1% of people who do should be there to love you and care for you. And I know you may carry a lot of baggage. And I know we don't always handle these situations particularly well. We all need to learn to grow in grace and mercy. Myself, at the front of the line. What I am saying is if we are going to fight for life, not just physical life, but spiritual life, if we believe that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came to bring life and bring it abundant, if we believe those things, we need to fight together. As the body of Christ who care deeply for one another, not shaming one another, not pushing away, not saying get your life together and then you can come back, that this is a place of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the reason it should be that is every one of us needs that deeply. That when we look at the speck in the other person's eye, there's probably a huge log sticking out of our own eye. And so when we confront these temptations, we do it together. Because God is good. Jesus' victory is complete. His spirit is powerful. His word is true. And through his church, we find hope. Would you believe that God loves you? Would you believe that Jesus died for you? Would you believe that his spirit is at work in your life? Would you believe that it matters that you're in his word this week? Would you believe that gathering with people to worship is a powerful part of what God wants to do in your life? As we do that together, I can't wait to see where he takes us. Would you bow your heads with, with me? I know we tried to cover a, a lot of ground, even out of just kind of this one verse starting the chapter, but let's go back to John 10, 10 as you have your, your head bowed and thinking about God's work in your life. The thief comes to steal, to steal joy, to kill hope, to destroy peace, 
But Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Life is a gift from God. And even when sin and death come, there's hope through Jesus. This morning, you may be battling against temptation right now in your life, and you're on the edge of just saying it's not worth it. I'm just going to give up or justify or give in. You know that God is good, and he is loving, and there is hope through Christ. Hold on to the word. Hold on to the gift of the church. You may be here, and you are buried by guilt from something that happened 10 years ago or 10 hours ago. I want you to know that God is loving, that he is good, and that there is forgiveness and hope through Jesus. Don't hide from healing. Don't hide from hope. You can know it is well with your soul that there is peace when we turn to Christ. Here in just a minute as we sing together and we take up our offering during that song, you may need to come to the front just praying for forgiveness, praying for God's grace in your life, trusting in him for the first time. Whatever it is you're facing right now, know that you're not alone, that God's at work in your life and that you are surrounded by people who care about you. God, as we stand and sing here in just a moment, would you work in our hearts? God, would you bring peace where before there was no peace and that only comes through the hope we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.